Now hear God's words from the book of Matthew, chapter 21, uh, starting with verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. Uh, Happy Palm Sunday to you. This is uh, heading towards the highlight of uh, all that our faith is about as we head into what's traditionally called Holy Week and then Good Friday and, of course, Easter on Sunday. And that means it's that time of year when the TV stations and the cable channels and the streaming services all dust off their old religious movies and trot them out at this time of year. Uh, Christmas and Easter are kind of the only times that we really sort of hear much about Jesus in popular culture, so I guess in some ways that's good, Uh, but did you ever notice they get a lot of things kind of messed up and a little bit skewed? I mean, you, you know what I'm talking about? Like even what we think of Jesus. I mean, Jesus always has blue eyes and, and dark blonde hair, like Max von Sydow from the, the greatest story ever told. I mean, you look at this guy and you're like, that is not Jewish. That guy is Swedish, right? Like, blessed are the poor in spirit is kind of, <laughs> kind of what you're expecting to hear from this guy. Or in another movie, Jesus looks honestly like a California surfer, like, I've come to make you righteous, dude. And then in another movie, there's fashion model Jesus. I mean, this guy's like on the catwalk modeling this year's latest tunic. And then there's kind of what we might call low blood sugar Jesus. I mean, (laughs) this guy is a carpenter? Like he's going to blow over in a strong wind. Every time they get Jesus wrong. And Easter is where there's this big swing and a miss in all these religious movies. You know, Palm Sunday, the Bible says that Jesus and his disciples enter Jerusalem and a great crowd cheers him. But if you ever pay close attention in these movies, it's uh, like all the extras they could afford were like a dozen people. It's a small office party for Jesus. 
Like, you know, we'll get a cake from Costco or something. That'll cover it. The way that all these movies portray Jesus and portray this last week of Jesus' life, it doesn't make sense to us. I mean, why is this crowd doing this? I mean, not just these 12, but literally a great crowd. That, that's not explained. What about the palm branches? Why are they shouting Hosanna? What is that about? And I think really most of all, we're left wondering, how did many of the same people who are cheering Jesus on Palm Sunday come back and call out for his blood on Friday? That Many of the same people who are shouting Hosanna less than a week later are saying, crucify him. His blood be on our heads. I mean, at Hollywood, Jesus goes around just saying nice things and, and being nice to people. Why would you even crucify someone like that? It, it doesn't make sense. Why the shift in their response? Why do praises turn into curses? That's what we could call the Palm Sunday problem. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And, and I hope that we're going to see how we're like those people too. And in God's word, we can find some answers for their problem and ours. So let's talk about what really happened on Palm Sunday. If you haven't already, you can open your Bible or grab one of those Bibles in the chair underneath the seat in front of you. Uh, Matthew chapter 21 is on page 981 in this uh, black ESV Bible. Because part of understanding this Palm Sunday problem is trying to figure out what happened according to the people who were actually there, like Matthew and Mark and John. Hollywood aside, what, what did this look like? Well, John, in his gospel, again, talks about a great crowd that had come for the festival. Now, what festival is that? It's the Passover celebration. It's the memorial of God delivering his people out of slavery in Egypt and how the blood of a sacrificial lamb cause God to pass over their sins. It's, it's the greatest feast in the religious celebrations of the year. And the historian Josephus tells us that hundreds of thousands of people would have been coming to Jerusalem to celebrate this, this great feast. Can you see now why the gospel writers would say the religious leaders were afraid of this crowd? Like they might start a riot because they're fickle and there's hundreds of thousands of people. So why palm branches? Okay, can you help me out with this? Can you make this sign, symbol with your hand, right? Now, if you lived in the 60s, what does this mean? Peace, groovy, man, right? Now, if you're in the GI generation and you saw this symbol in the 40s, what does that mean? V for victory. That's what the palm branches are about. The palm branches became a national symbol of victory and triumph and deliverance. And so this, this word that they keep repeating, Hosanna, it means save us. God, rescue us. And they're quoting Psalm 118, just like we heard read earlier. Now, in Jesus' time, it's become a cry for deliverance from oppressors. It's almost become like a, a patriotic song. So it's almost like Jesus is getting ushered into town with a, a flag-waving parade and the crowds are singing the Battle Hymn of the Republic during the Civil War. I mean, that, that's kind of what's going on here. Why? Why all this? Well, some of the historical background. In 176 BC, Jerusalem had been taken over by the Syrians. They outlawed the worship of Yahweh. 
They kill the priests. They burn the Hebrew Bible. They even slaughter a pig in the temple and declare that it is now an altar to Zeus. And in response to this, a Jewish leader named uh, Judas Maccabeus raises up a revolt against the Syrians. And in 166 BC, he recaptures Jerusalem. He cleanses the temple. He drives out the Gentile oppressors. The people hail him as king. It's the greatest event in recent Jewish history. It, it, it's so significant, in fact. I mean, it's the background to the celebration of Hanukkah that still continues to this day in Judaism. And that was 200 years before this Palm Sunday. Now, do any of you remember our nation's bicentennial in 1976? Remember the flags and the songs? Amelia, my wife's willing to admit that we were around for that, yes, 40-plus uh, years ago now, right? Uh, the flags and songs, and, and we relearned all the stories of the revolution, and, and it was just this great swell of pride in our nation, right? Well, these people are in that moment in their history. They're not listening to what Jesus is saying. They're not paying attention to what his mission is, who he is. They're looking for Moses. They're looking for Maccabeus. They're looking for someone to deliver them politically, militarily. And so they're crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord because they're looking for a king to sit on David's throne and drive out the bad guys and bring back the good days. A hundred years before Palm Sunday, the Romans have invaded Jerusalem and established their own king. And now for the last century, these people have been chafing under foreign rule. They're hoping that the Messiah, the anointed one, will deliver them from oppression. And they're looking at Jesus and thinking, this is it. He's the one who's going to set us free. He's going to make everything right. But they miss what Matthew points out here for us. Jesus comes humbly on a donkey. He's not riding into town on a war horse. He's not wearing armor. He doesn't have an army with him. And the rest of Zechariah's prophecy is, talks about how the Messiah will come righteous and bringing salvation, and he will speak peace to the nations. And what happens next helps explain why the people turn on him. Just like Judas Maccabeus, Jesus goes to the temple area and he picks up a whip, right? And the people have got to be thinking, all right, here we go. Man, the Romans are going down hard. Except look at what he does in verse 12. He goes into the temple and he drives out those who are selling and buying and he overturns the tables of the money changers and those who were selling pigeons. Now, why is Jesus doing this? Well, when God's people had to go to the temple to worship, they paid a temple tax, except they couldn't pay it in Roman coins, in, in the common money that everyone had in their pockets. Can you figure out why they wouldn't be able to use these Roman coins? There's a picture of Caesar on it. It's a graven image of a man who claims to be God on earth. So they had to change their Roman money for temple money. And every time they did, the money changers made a huge profit off the deal. And every time you had to buy a dove or a lamb to offer for sacrifice, because you're not going to bring it all the way from across the Mediterranean, there was a huge markup on price. And it turned into a racket. So that the money sellers and, and the offering, the, the people who sold the animals for offering, had taken up most of the space for worshipers. 
And that's why Jesus is angry and he says, it's written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. See, Jesus is outraged at this because he's not about making a profit off of people. He's about calling people to get close to God, not about putting up barriers and and making distance between them. And so instead of driving the Romans out, he drives out the religious system. And, And then he goes on in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 23, to a whole chapter of just these condemnation to the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, whitewashed tombs and hypocrites and greedy hypocrites and and robbers. This is not looking like a revolution against Rome. Well, maybe Jesus is going to throw out the religious leaders and and establish his center of operations in the temple, and and he's going to start there, right? Except after this, Matthew tells us in chapter 24 that Jesus is leaving the temple, and the disciples point out to him all the buildings of the temple, and he says, you see all of these? I tell you, there will not be one left stone upon another that's not going to be thrown down. So Jesus is saying, not only am I not here to liberate this place, it's all going to be destroyed. And their heads have to be reeling, wait wait a minute, the the temple is going to be destroyed, our place of worship is going to be taken away. And then it gets worse. Jesus goes to a friend's house for dinner in Bethany, just a few miles away in chapter 26, and Uh, He has dinner at this friend's house, Simon, and a woman comes up to him with an alabaster flask of expensive ointment, and she pours it on him as he reclines at table. And when the disciples see it, they were indignant. Now, this woman has recognized Jesus' identity. She gets who he is and what he's come to do, and in gratitude and humility and worship, she falls down at his feet and says, thank you, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for saving me. What gift could ever be enough to give back to you for what you have done for me? But the disciples don't get it. They're indignant. Did you catch that word? Just like the Pharisees were as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. Offended. And Judas has had enough. He goes to the chief priests and says, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Because in his eyes, Jesus is the traitor. He's blown the mission. Maybe Judas is thinking, you know, this will put some heat under him and and he'll have to get doing what he's supposed to be doing. Now we understand all of this is part of Jesus' plan to go to the cross. It demonstrates his perfect obedience to the Father's will. It shows his love for us. It shows how desperately we need a Savior. It's his mission. But either the people don't get it or they don't want to get it and, and they're disappointed and they reject him and even his disciples on the night he's betrayed all walk away from him one by one. That is the Palm Sunday problem. When we decide what Jesus should be doing and how he should be doing it and when he should be doing it, And then when it doesn't happen, we can get bitter and disappointed and walk away. And we can be just like those people. Because there are times in my life that I felt let down because Jesus didn't live up to my expectations for what I I thought he ought to be doing. As a 14-year-old, Johnny had 
proclaimed Jesus as Savior over her life, but in her words, she had confused the Christian life with the great American dream. I was going to be thin, I was going to get good grades, I was going to be voted of the hockey team, I was going to go to college and marry a good-looking guy who was going to make plenty of money, and we'd have two and a half children and live happily ever after. And it was all me-focused, she says. What can God do for me? And at the same time, I knew that my boyfriend and I were doing things together that, that we knew were wrong. And in April of 1967, she says, I came home from a sordid date and I cried out, Oh God, I'm staining your reputation by saying that I'm a Christian because I do one thing on Friday night and, and then I say something else on Sunday morning. I'm a hypocrite. I want you to change my life. Please do something that will turn it right side up because I'm, I'm making a mess of my faith. I want to glorify you, Johnny prayed. And three months later, she was in a diving accident that left her paralyzed from the neck down for the rest of her life. And immediately after the accident, Johnny told God, I will never trust you with another one of my prayers. Does that ever happen to you? God, why are you doing this? What went wrong? I was not supposed to get cancer. I was not supposed to have all this trouble in my family. Why is my job so difficult? Why financial struggles? Why this pain that I live with? I've known people so disappointed that they, they leave the church and some of them leave their faith altogether. I think there are mistakes that we make like this crowd that we can learn from. And the first is this. I, I've got to stop giving Jesus an identity that is not his. I've got to stop giving Jesus an identity that is not his. Sometimes, I think we can pick the parts of Jesus that we like. We take the sayings that you know, align with what we'd like our life to look like or what we'd like Jesus to be like or what we'd like to hear from him and we focus on that and, and ignore the rest. You know, I was thinking about that uh, when I, I ran across this in a store a while ago, a little Jesus action figure. <laughs> Have you ever seen anything like this? I mean, I don't know whether to be amused or sad or, or a combination. I mean, it's kind of cool. It actually says it has gliding action. So I guess, you know, you can like walk across the water, I suppose. But that's a shrink-wrapped savior, right? I mean, it's literally Jesus in a box. And yet sometimes that's about the size of the Jesus we have. A Jesus that's here to comfort me, to amuse me, to entertain me, to fulfill my agenda for my life, but not big enough to challenge me or confront me or change me. I mean, think about some of the identities that we give Jesus. Genie Jesus. Man, make me prosperous, make me wealthy, bless me, give me prosperity. And there's a lot of that going around today, right? Or judge Jesus. You know, I, I know, Lord, that someday you're going to come and judge all sin and all sinners, but I'd like you to do that now, if you could, right? Like, what happened to the smiting, okay? You used to be really big on smiting. Nobody's getting smoten anymore. And there are people out there that need being knocked down. Not me, of course, but it'd be great if you'd get after those people and take them out of power and put the right ones in power. Or guru Jesus. You know, I, man, you've just got so many wise, encouraging, inspirational things to say, Jesus. That's kind of what I want to focus on. And sooner or later, we find out that the real Jesus doesn't stay in our boxes. 
Later that week, Jesus is interrogated by the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And he's trying to figure out what to do with Jesus. And Jesus says, you're right in saying that I am a king. It's for this reason that I came into the world. Because the real Jesus does not exist to satisfy our desires, to meet our needs, to spit out answers like a search engine. He confronts us with truth that we may not want to hear. So one question we might ask is, does your Jesus only confront other people? (laughs) Or does he ever confront you? Does he challenge you and make you uncomfortable? And I was... (laughs) Kind of hit with this this last weekend when many of us were at this uh, fantastic marriage conference uh, that, that we were blessed to be able to host. And uh, Paul Tripp was talking about anger and how quick we are to take offense, to assume the worst about others, to show irritation when other people or situations annoy us. Does your Jesus always tell you you have a good reason to be angry, but you know other people have a problem with unrighteous anger? Or or does he challenge you? Does your Jesus ever call you to obey him when you don't like what he's asking and it's going to be difficult? When it doesn't feel good? Because a Jesus who does not call you to self-denying obedience is not the real Jesus. I've got to stop giving Jesus an identity that's not his. And I've got to stop giving Jesus an agenda that is not his. I mean, that's what the crowd is doing, right? Jesus, get busy kicking out the Romans, establish your kingdom on earth, bring in the good days, elevate us and put them down. We're so sure that we know what Jesus ought to be doing in our lives and in this world. And and yet, at the same time, we worship a God who says, my ways are not your ways. And my thoughts are not your thoughts. Again, Jesus is on trial before Pilate and he says, my kingdom is not of this world. Because if it were, my followers would fight to prevent my arrest. Do you get what he's saying? My agenda is not to take over by force. I'm not going to bring about my kingdom by getting the right people in power, by electing the people that we think are going to stand up for us and defend our rights and push something through. I'm not here to take over militarily. I'm here to start a revolution, but it's not going to be in the way you think. I'm not going to do things the way you would. I read a great story about uh, a girl named Jade who had started attending a youth ministry at a church in, in her town. She sat in the back dressed all in black because Jade was a witch, literally. She was part of a neo-pagan coven. And she and some friends had gone to youth group basically to just sort of laugh and, and you know to find stuff to make fun of, except... Against everyone's expectations, Jade actually becomes a follower of Jesus and a really committed one. She starts memorizing whole books of the Bible. And she shared some insights about her newfound faith with her youth pastor. She said, you know, when I was in my coven, I practiced witchcraft spells to try and get the universe to do my bidding. It was like the spells were the strings and and the, the world was the puppet. And it seems like a lot of what gets called Christianity is more like witchcraft than following Jesus. Because people seem to think and pray, their will be done, not thy will be done, Lord. It's like they're trying to pull God's strings instead of letting God pull the strings. 
And how do you navigate through that, right? Because we come to a God who says, ask and you'll receive and knock and the door will be opened. And, and yet, man, that so easily shades over into, Jesus, here's what you need to be doing in my life. And, and you really need to get after it. Think of some of the agendas that, that we try to force on Jesus. You know, Jesus, don't let me get sick. Jesus, don't let me get in an accident. Don't let anything bad happen to my family. As though, like, God's agenda is to make our family invincible or something. What if his agenda is actually to make us more dependent on him and not self-sustaining so that in our weakness his grace could be made perfect? You know, Lord, end the drought during someone else's vacation, not mine. Or, you know, Jesus, it is the first weekend of spring and six inches of snow, really? I mean, come on, that's not on the plan, right? And sometimes do our prayers amount to, God, I know what is best for me. So if you could just exercise your power and, and get to doing that, that'd be awesome. Are we willing to let God pull the strings? Like, like these disciples, right? I mean, this is, did you catch that? Jesus, we don't know whether it's, you know, just some miracle or maybe uh, the, the common uh, ex expected idea in the day is if a rabbi needs something for the Passover, you provide it. Or maybe Jesus had arranged for this donkey delivery service beforehand. But in any case, the disciples are sent out to say, the Lord needs it. That's it. The Lord needs it. And, and, he, and the follower says, okay, fine. Whatever I have, Jesus, it's yours. My time, my money, whatever. I, I belong to you. I'd like to say that more often in my life. Jesus, you are Lord. Your will be done in my life. I want your agenda, Jesus. And I need to stop giving Jesus a schedule that's not his. Because that's part of what's going on here too, isn't it? Like, man, don't you know the timetable, Jesus? Because it's revolution now. Sin judged and sinners punished today. But God operates on his own timing, obviously. I mean, the, the fascinating thing is I love how honest the Bible is. I mean, the disciples don't get this even after the resurrection. I mean, think about it. They've seen Jesus dead and buried and risen from the grave. He spends 40 days with them teaching them. And he's telling them, I'm going to return to the Father and I'm going to send the Spirit to empower you for mission. And what do they ask? Oh, okay, so now you're going to establish the kingdom in Israel. Oh, you guys... How many of you have discovered in your life that your schedule and God's schedule are not always the same? And how many of you have discovered with gratitude that God had a better timing than you did? We have seen that in our lives, right? Uh, at one point early in our marriage, Amelia and I were going back and forth over uh, wanting to leave New York and an opportunity to go work for uh, a parachurch ministry in Georgia for like half of what we were making before or to take another marketing job in Wisconsin close to her family and, and we agonized we ended up taking the job in Wisconsin I get there and like six months later the, I was misled the job's going away and so then I have to get this job commuting down to the suburbs of Chicago and and then lo and behold I seen a, a trade uh, magazine that this ministry has reopened a search for an even better position that aligns with my experience and my education, and it pays pretty well. 
And we're like, okay, we are on board with this. And Amelia's like, yeah, let's go explore that. So we go down. It goes great. They make me a job offer. We're looking at homes. And the day before I go to tell my boss that we're leaving, they call me up and say, we're rescinding the job offer. Because they had gotten caught in some pyramid scheme. Uh, Like that was a thing back in the 90s, like send us $10,000 and a mystery donor will double your money. It was all a Ponzi scheme. There was no mystery donor. They had given $100,000 to this new era philanthropy thing, and they were just out $100,000. So no job, no calling to this parachurch ministry, and I went into depression for probably a month and a half. God, what are you doing? I mean, we were, we were literally at the finish line. We weren't trying to do something sinful or selfish. We, we're following your call. We want to serve you. And you slammed the door in our face. And then six months later, the timing was right for us to go to seminary and and be able to enter vocational ministry. And now I can look back on that and say, thank you, Lord, that you didn't take me there, that you didn't open that door, that your timing was perfect. So we've seen that happen, but can I believe it now, today, for the thing that I'm impatient for right now? See, I know that, that God was good about his timing in the past, but... Now I'm in the middle of something that makes me want to get Jesus going and make something happen. We can say, thank you, Lord, that you slowed me down at that time. Can I say it today, right now, in the middle of that thing? A few years ago, in a Palm Sunday message, uh, Pastor Joey said, when you're praising the king that you made up, it's easy to crucify the Messiah that's right in front of you. When you're praising the king that you made up, it's easy to crucify the Messiah that's right in front of you. Because, see, I want a king to fix the problems out there. But, man, it's a lot harder for me to want a savior to fix the problems in here. So so what do I do with that? Well, I think the last thing is I, I need to start believing that Jesus is in control and that he knows best. I mean, it all comes down to that, doesn't it? That's that's the heart of our Palm Sunday problem. We stop following the real Jesus. Because the disciples, the crowds, everyone was willing to follow Jesus as long as it was miracles and free food and it looks like it's going to be good times are coming and he's going to follow my agenda on my timetable. But as soon as Jesus takes an unexpected turn, they say, you know, that's not who I thought you were. That's not what I want you to be doing. So they stop following Patrick Smith is a commercial airline pilot, and in his book on flying, he says that flyers' number one anxiety is, can you guess? Turbulence, right? Because something bad's going to happen to the plane, we're going to go down, and um, so much about it seems dangerous. But Smith says that from the perspective of the jet pilot, turbulence is just a blip. It's, It's not even worth worrying about. Here's what he writes. Basically, a passenger jet cannot be flipped upside down, thrown into a tailspin, or otherwise flung from the sky by even the strongest winds. Conditions may be annoying, they may be uncomfortable, but the plane is not going to crash. Turbulence is a nuisance, but it's normal. The pilots aren't worried about the wings falling off. They're trying to keep the customers happy when they're avoiding turbulence. They're trying to make sure everyone's coffee is where it's supposed to be. In the worst of it, he says, passengers are probably imagining the pilots in a sweaty lather, you know, barking out orders and their their hands frantically gripping the wheel. But he said, nothing could be further from the truth. 
while the passengers are fretting about the turbulence, the pilots are sitting up front having a casual conversation about what they ate for breakfast. Because it's just normal, and, and they're not worried. Jesus is in control, and he knows what he's doing. Can we trust that he knows where he's going, he knows how to fly the plane, and he'll get it there when it's supposed to be there? It's easy to say sitting here on Sunday morning, right? But see, we can sing, Hosanna, save me Jesus, when we really are surrendered to him and not giving orders to him. Because then it becomes, Jesus, save me from my real enemy. Save me from sin. Save me from pride and anger and cynicism and fear and doubt. We can wave palm branches and celebrate his victory when we really do acknowledge that he is Lord. And that means Lord over me, Lord over my life, and Lord over the things that are happening in it. Because Jesus is the one who gives us our real identity. See, when we come to Jesus, when, when we see what he's done and what his real mission is, now we find our identity in the fact that I am loved, I am known, I am forgiven, I am accepted, I am delighted in. I am a child of grace. That's who I am. That's my identity. And, and then the real Jesus starts to give us our agenda. If he's rescued me, if he's saved me, he makes me part of his mission to go out and spread his rescue and his reconciliation and his joy and his lordship and his worship to more people. So that we are part of now Jesus proclaiming peace to the nations. That's his agenda for our lives. To make much of him. And then that gives us confidence about his schedule because he's going to accomplish it. He accomplished it in our lives. If Jesus had listened to the timetable of those disciples, none of us would be here. If Jesus brings in judgment and the end of all things, 1,900 years ago, we're lost. We're dead in sin. Jesus has a schedule in which he is working out everything according to his perfect will. He will accomplish all his purposes. He will return. He will judge. He will rule and reign in his time. And see, when we see Jesus that way, that gives us confidence and hope and faith in all the turbulence that comes into our lives. Because we trust that he is good and he knows what he's doing. Johnny Erickson Tata has now lived as a quadriplegic for 50 years. She initially struggled with a lot of anguish, a lot of doubt, a lot of anger. But Johnny says, I prayed one short prayer that changed my life. Oh God, if I can't die, show me how to live. She said that was probably the most powerful prayer she's ever prayed. And, and then her wheelchair has become the place for the last five decades of her bringing hope and encouragement to millions of people around the world in the name of Jesus. Listen to what she says. In our ministry, we refuse to present a picture of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, because we deal with a lot of people who suffer. And when your heart is being wrung out like a sponge, when it feels like salt is being poured in a wounded soul, you don't want a thin, pale, emotional Jesus who can only relate to birds and babies and rainbows. You want a mighty Jesus. You want a rigorous and robust gospel to command your sensibilities to stand at attention. 
You want the strong arm of an unshakable grip of a God who will not let you go no matter what and who is working out his purposes in everything. That's what we want, isn't it? That's what our hearts are made for, a God who will surprise us, a God who will challenge us, a God who will confront us, a God who takes our breath away, a God who stretches us, a God who humbles us, a God who makes demands on us, a God who loves us with a fierce devotion. We don't want a God that we can control. Thank God that Jesus doesn't promise that life is going to work out the way that we want because most of what I want is stupid and selfish. I need a God who knows better than me, not a God who does what I want because a God you can control is not a God worth having. I'm so glad that Jesus is not like that. Aren't you? We have a God who is in control, who knows best, and who is worthy of worship and awe and trust. Don't give up. Sing Hosanna to the King who is worthy and who saves us for his purposes in his time. Follow that Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord, we come to you knowing and seeing humbly how often we are trying to direct you, control you, define you, schedule you. God, help us and forgive us. Would you take our hands and lead us wherever you want us to go? Because you are the King. You are our Lord. You are our Savior. Help us to surrender to you. Lord, whether for the first time or all over again, that your will would be done in our lives for your glory and for our joy. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.